0: Alright, well good morning church, my name is Doug, I'm the pastor here at East and it's a joy to be able to worship with you this morning, to be able to open God's word together. Um, If you are new, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are thrilled that you are here. Uh, We're so glad to have you here, we'd love to get the chance to, um, you got to know us a little bit, we'd love to get the chance to know you and so whether it's after the service, myself, somebody that you see up front here, um, introduce yourself, we'd love to get to know you around here. We are, um, in January here, we're starting a new series, and we're going to be walking through the book of Philippians. And Philippians, if you have not read it before, is a phenomenal, phenomenal It's a short letter, but it is a deep and it is a rich, rich letter. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I sure hope you do, um, I would invite you to take them out. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. If you do not have a copy of of God's Word, you just raise your hand and Craig's coming down right now. He will put a Bible in your hand. So Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look this morning primarily just at verses 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Um, I'm going to read this for us here, and then we will dive in and get started, all right? So, Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you um, for these words. Lord, and I pray that your spirit would come now in this place where that he would show us your son. Lord, that we might glory in you. You are a amazing and amazing God. We just sang about your awesome, awesome love, Father. And Lord, I pray that even just in the next couple of minutes that you would help us um, just see your love on display as we consider Paul's unique relationship with this church at Philippi. Father, I pray that you would move your people to be a people who, um, whose love would abound more and more. That we love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Um, Real quick before I dive in here, I wanted to make you aware of something we have available at the front desk. These are just short copies of just the book of Philippians. And the way they're lined out is they just have on one page, they have the text, and on the next side they have just places where you can make notes. And so if this is something that would help you in your study as a church, we're going to be talking about it up front every week for the next couple of weeks. Um, I would encourage you to, if you don't want to grab one of these, to, to really dedicate the next several weeks to studying this Word. There's a lot of time that goes into studying and preparing these messages, uh, but I guarantee you they will be ten times more rich and probably understandable if you spend some time before and after Sunday in God's Word, specifically in Philippians. And so these are available on your way out. Um, there is a, a donation. They did cost $5. If you want to donate that, you, know, you can place that in there. If you want to, if you don't have $5 with you, you can just take it and 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 this one's on us. All right. But these have been a, these have been a helpful tool for me and I would encourage you um, to Help yourself to those there are some out there. Uh, earlier, a couple weeks ago, I was eating at one of my favorite places in town to eat, and it actually has my favorite meal, okay? Uh, my favorite meal in town is at Bluebird, and it's called, I kind of celebrated just recently because I saw they, they took breakfast and they made it an all-day deal. They used to shut it down at like 11, um, at least certain parts of the menu, they shut it down at 11, but my favorite meal there is called Juevos Epstinos huevos abstinos and it's it's really really good all right so just give me a moment all right they make this green chili with this smoked shredded pork all right and they put it over this bed of polenta with a couple of over medium eggs on top and with a with a nice side of hash browns and it all just kind of oozes together and it is amazing, okay, it's amazing. I was eating there recently with a friend of mine and I have to be careful, I don't order it every time I go there because if I do, there would be a lot more of me on this stage, okay, because it is a hearty, it is a hearty meal, okay. I was eating there with a friend of mine and, and this this particular individual really likes green chili, he really likes green chili and, and so he ordered uh, a similar dish and, and as we began to eat it, you know, within a few minutes of eating this meal, I looked up across the table at this friend of mine. And I, I, I noticed that his entire face had burst forth in sweat, all right? And he was starting, he started off the meal white, okay? It was amazing. But before my eyes, he turned to this, this dark red color, okay? Because huevos abstinos, this green chili, is, it's got a little kick to it. Now, it's not a big kick, but it's a little bit of a kick, all right? It's a little hot, right? And he was, like, seriously wiping off his face, as we were eating this meal. It's a little, it's a little spicy. And, and, I, and I mentioned to him, I said, I thought you said you really like green chili, but like you're not. And he's like, no, no, I really, I really enjoy it, but, but this one's a little hot. When, when, I, when I enjoy green chili, what I really want is just enough spice to get the flavor, right? I don't want it to overtake me. I just want enough heat to get the flavor. That was the way he approaches green chili. And I would think for many of us, I know it's true, but for many of us, and and maybe in this room, even this morning, for many of us, this is exactly how we treat Jesus. It's exactly how we treat Jesus. Just give me enough, Jesus, that I get the idea, right? I get a taste. I get a flavor. The benefits. Give me just enough, Jesus, that I get a flavor for what it's like to be a Christian. Just enough. Not too much, right? And for folks who approach Jesus in this way, they've come to adopt really a tame, domesticated, safe version of Jesus that we don't find in the Bible. Okay? Just enough Jesus. And I think as we consider, we talked a little bit about this last week as we talked about prayer, but as we think about the secular moment that we are in right now, for many of us, it doesn't necessarily tempt us to completely abandon and walk away from our faith. Rather, what it tempts us to do is to squeeze Jesus into the periphery of our life, into the margins of our life. Just enough jesus to get the basic idea to get the flavor of what it's like to be a christian but not enough jesus not too much jesus just just enough right not so much jesus that we would um, that we want to love those that we recall to love those whom we don't even like right we don't want the jesus who would call us to do that not 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 so much jesus that we would give that which we want to keep we, we don't want a Jesus who's going to call us to do that. Not the kind of Jesus, not so much Jesus that's going to call us to go when all we want to do is to stay or to trust, to trust when we would rather just do, Right? What well, we find out when we go through the book of Philippians, what Paul, essentially this is a beautiful letter. It's a beautiful letter. And what we see, what we see in Paul, what we see at the church of Philippi, of Philippi is what happens when you take Jesus out of the periphery of your life and you drive him into the very heart and the center of who you are. And the way that that transforms everything around you. And at Parkview, at Parkview East, that's exactly what we are on a mission to do as a church, to pursue Jesus in everyday life. To see Jesus as he wedges his way into the deepest parts of your life, and as he goes saying, that's mine, and that's mine, and that's mine, and that's mine, seeing how that looks when we live it out. So the book of Philippians shows us in this morning specifically how taking Jesus and placing him at the center of your heart will radically transform your relationships with other people. So we see here in the first couple of verses of this beautiful letter. The the big idea for this morning, the big aim, the thing I want you to walk away seeing this morning is simply the blessing of genuine Christian friendship. The blessing of genuine, real, authentic Christian friendship. That's what Paul shows us. Jesus wants to be the center of your relationships. Whether you know it or not, you want him there too. That's what we'll see as Paul addresses this letter. Now, we're going to break down the, 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 the idea of the text is pretty simple, right? The blessedness of genuine friendship. Paul holds up this relationship, this beautiful relationship that he has with the church at Philippi. And he shows us that this is something that is good for us and that we should want in our, our lives as well. In our church as well. And so as we walk through this text, we'll see it breaks down pretty easily into three different sections. We have a word of greeting. Then we see a word in verses 3 to 8, a word of thanks. And then 9, 10, and 11, a word of prayer. So I'm going to spend a little bit more time. This is our first message in the book of Philippians. So I want to lay the groundwork. I want to see the context that we're looking at. And actually, it will inform our text a great, great deal. Okay, so first up, we're going to look at the, the greeting that Paul gives in verses 1 through 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in the greeting, we see who is writing the letter. This, the person who is writing the letter is Paul. Right? He's written a great deal of the New Testament, of our word, that we have is come from Paul. And what we know about Paul as he's writing this is he's actually writing it while he's in prison in Rome, in Rome. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a Roman colony, but he was in Rome writing to this church. It was a church that Paul actually, we know Paul to be a missionary. If you, if you know much about Paul, you know that he had a tremendous zeal for spreading the gospel. But his, his tactic for spreading the gospel and see it really take over the world, take over the, the ancient Near East and eventually take over the Roman Empire, take over the entire world, really spread throughout all of the nations, was because his effective way of spreading the gospel was to plant churches. He was a missionary and he was a church planter. And That's exactly what he did in Philippi. One of his journeys to Philippi, he met some believers, and we're going to look at this in a few minutes. He met some believers, and he started a church. God started a work, a movement of the gospel there in Philippi. So Paul is writing to these individuals in about 61 AD. Now he planted the church in about 50 or 51 AD, so there's about 10 years difference between when he was there planting the church and when he's now in Rome writing them. Okay? And we'll see the reason that he's writing them is because they sent a gift to him by this man named Epaphroditus. They had sent a gift. They had heard of his troubles. They heard of his incarceration. And they wanted to support him. So they send him a gift. Paul sends that man back with this letter. Okay? This letter is incredibly insightful into the life and the ministry of Paul. And it's incredibly encouraging and challenging for us as we consider being a gospel people. Paul was a gospel man who had a gospel mission. And we want to be a gospel people as well. So what I want you to do real quick is, again, to get a flavor of what it's like to be this recipients of this letter. To get an idea of what is going on in Philippi, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. You can keep your thumb in Philippians 1, but we're going to look a little bit at chapter 16 in the book of Acts. Chapter 16 is when Paul first comes into Philippi. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. It tells us a great deal about, we know a little bit about the author... Paul tells us a great deal about the people that he is writing to, all right? So we'll go ahead and start into verse, let's go to verse 13. So Paul is making his way, he's making his way into Europe. This is the first time that he is taking the gospel into Europe. And and as he's there, he sees this call to to come over to to Macedonia where um, he's going to preach the gospel. The Spirit makes it real clear, don't go there, don't go there, but come here. So Paul goes over to Philippians, to, uh, to Philippi. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. So as Paul comes in the town, kind of his tactic is to identify folks who are already have some sort of understanding of who God is. So one of the first things that Paul does is he looks for a synagogue. The fact that he can't find a synagogue shows us that this Roman colony doesn't have a very strong Jewish presence. So what Paul does is he goes to the next best place. He goes outside the city, comes to the river, the most ideal place where there would possibly be any God- Centered God follower people that they would be there and praying and that's exactly what he finds. It kind of happens on, to be honest, a bit of a Bible study. So there was a place of prayer and we sat down and they spoke to the women. found some women there that were praying by the river who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. A seller of purple goods. Thyatira is in Asia so Lydia is from Asia but she's now in Europe and she's selling purple goods. You may think oh purple goods like well she must really be struggling. No just do away with that thought. This woman's got some bread okay. She is a successful woman. She's from Thyatira which is the center of really the purple trade. Purple goods were useful because they were expensive and the people who bought purple typically had lots of money because they were noble or they were royal. Okay, so Lydia, our girl Lydia, she's doing all right. You know what I'm saying? She's doing okay. She's in a foreign land, Asian woman, a successful fashionista businesswoman in Europe, wheeling and dealing, right? And she's also intelligent. She's a spiritual person. She's down by the river and she's playing. She's with praying. She's with other women. So Paul and Silas, they happen upon her. She was a worshiper of God. That's what the way they describe her. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord, as they interact with her, began to open her heart, we're told, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, so they have a Bible study, hey, we're by the river, boom, baptized, she comes to saving faith in Jesus. And her household as well. So it's not just Lydia, but her entire home. Her husband, children. Odds are if she was successful, if she was wealthy, she also had slaves. And when they say household, they also meaning slaves that she probably owned as well. Entire household coming to saving faith in Jesus. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she invites them to stay, and they, she prevailed upon us. So the first interaction we see is that Paul, these men, the first convert in Philippi, is Lydia. Successful fashionista right intelligent engaging with the scriptures tell me more about this god okay the lord opens her heart saving faith okay lydia is the first girl let's look at the next conversion into the in church of philippi paul and silas they, they're in prison at this point uh, they get into prison eventually and this is the story that will lead them into prison as we're going to the place of prayer We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. The spirit of divination, the word here really is like a, it's like a snake. A spirit of a snake is kind of the word that it's translated. And the idea was that there was a serpent that would guard Apollo's temple. So it's a a term that has to deal with the mythological sort of pagan understandings of the spiritual world. And she was plagued by this particular Demon and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So what you have to see about the slave girl is she is in double bondage. She's doubly bound, One by a demon, okay? She is possessed by a demon, a little girl, a slave, possessed by a demon. So she's, one, in bondage to the demon, but in two, she's a slave girl, right? So somebody else saw that she had potential to make them money, so they possessed her as their property. She's doubly in bondage, in double bondage. She followed... uh, so, spirit divination brought her as much gain and fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God. So, the spirit recognizes the uniqueness of these individuals that are before him who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. So, wherever they would go, day after day after day, she is following behind them, yelling things at the top of her lungs, Okay? And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I love this, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So day after day after day, she's following. Finally, Paul's just had enough. Like he's irritated as he can be turns around, casts the demon immediately out of this girl, boom, it flees. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they saw that they don't stand a chance to make any more money, how do they respond? They seize Paul and Silas, drag them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. The gospel got into that community and what did it do? It began to disrupt the status quo. The, the social structures of that community began to be a little bit like uneasy, right? Individuals in that community began to be uneasy because the gospel was pressing in on them. So they take them before. Eventually the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to, be, to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So here the second person that has encountered the power, the saving power of Jesus Christ, of the gospel of Jesus, is a slave girl. The contrast between the first and the second convert could not be more striking. Fashionista, intelligent, successful, foreigner, purple goods and a slave girl doubly bound by a demon and slave owners, right? The the difference could not be more striking. These two women could not be further apart from each other on the social hierarchy. Completely different. The, The story keeps going. About midnight, maybe this is a story many of you are familiar with, about midnight, Paul and Cyrus, they're in jail, they're bound, are praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, right? This is a a, a guilt and shame culture. And so if these men get away on his watch, like, there's a price to pay. And oftentimes that would be his life, right? So he's thinking that the doors are open, the men are gone, I'm a dead man. Let's just do it myself, right? So he's ready to draw the sword and kill himself. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Right? He had heard them in the jail praying. He had heard the hymns that they were singing. He knew knew that they had a God that they worshipped, and this, this pagan man wanted their God to become his God. What do I have to do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour in the night and washed their wounds. And he too was baptized at once, he and all his family. And they brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that that, that he had believed in God. So in Philippi, Paul's there for a few days and this is already what happens. Lydia, fashionista, successful. Slave girl, demon possessed, liberated, set free by the saving power of Jesus. And the third convert is a pagan Roman official. A man who had not just possibly some wealth, but also a tremendous amount of power in that world. These three people could not be from different, more different walks of life. And the gospel proclaimed to each and every one of them radically has transformed their lives. This is the beginning of the church at Philippi. These individuals, these stories make up their church planting team. Now my guess is, I could be wrong. I have not done great studies in church planting, so I do not know the courses that they teach. But my guess would be, if you had to plant a church in a community, this would not be the description of the people you would want on your team. Recent converts, new in the faith, former slaves, demon-possessed. Pagan people, rulers and officials, the ones who are trying to stop the church, join them on your team as well. These people come, they reflect poverty and power. The lowest rung on the social hierarchy and the highest rung. You know, when we talk about the spread of Christianity in the early days, oftentimes, and to a great degree of truth, we talk about how so many folks that were living on the margins of society were brought into the community. And that is good, that is true, that is right but we must not discredit history. History tells us those people had to worship somewhere. And do you know where they worshiped? They worshiped in houses. And in those days, if you wanted to accommodate 50, 60, 70 people, and you had a house that would do so, you had some bread, okay? So the church, the amazing picture that we see of the beginnings of the church at Philippi is that it wasn't just the people that were poor and low on the rung, but it was also those who had the means. And that's the way the church spread in the early days. You see it all throughout the New Testament. All these people, different walks of life, coming together, coming together. They couldn't be more different from each other. They couldn't be, have less in common. But what they do have in common is that their lives had been radically changed by Jesus. And folks, even as we look around this room this morning, in many ways we could say the exact same thing about us here this morning in this place. I would be really, really concerned if our church community did not have people that looked different from each other, that, ref- that didn't reflect the community that we lived in, that didn't come from different places on the social hierarchy, right? Because what brings us together on a Sunday morning is, is not the color of our skin. It's not the language that we speak here in our community. It's not what brings us together. I think they can make a case for why that would be a good reason to come together so you can hear the message. Absolutely. But it's not the the means by which we come together. It's not what unites us. Right? Uh, The reason we come together is because the gospel is powerful enough to save every single one of us. It transcends our differences. And it makes us one unified people. Right? That's the first point. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to make the next two a little bit quicker. All right? So... Back to Philippians chapter 1, sorry. Next thing we see in verses 3 through 8 is a word of thanks. Let's look at Paul's first words and to this beloved community. Look at verse 3. I thank my God. If you have your own copy of the Bible and you are a person who writes in your Bible, I would underline that word, thank. I thank my God in my remembrance of you. And notice how he describes his thankfulness always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. So, Paul, as he begins his letter to the Philippians, he starts off by thanking God. He's thankful for them, and it's not just any kind of thankfulness that Paul has. It is a joyful thankfulness, right? It's a joyful, the other word I would underline there is he's making his prayer in joy, underline the word joy. It's a thankful joy. Remember, this brother, our brother Paul, is in prison, right? He is in Roman prison, And he's giving thanks with joy as he considers his friends at Philippi. He's fearing for his life, potentially. He's kept from his friends and his family. He's all alone. And he is thankful with joy as he considers his friends. This is a unique relationship he has with this church. Right, A tremendously unique, if he can be in jail, fearing for his life, and as he thinks about his friends who are far away, the feelings that well up inside of him are thankfulness and joy. It shows us that this friendship, this partnership that Paul has with this church is special. And as I think about it, what I think is exactly what I want to feel when I think of you. And it's exactly what you should want to feel when you think of each other. Thankful. Joy how Paul feels about his friends he's thankful for them and I do not want to I think it's it's amazing that he's in the midst of suffering and he can talk about his life being thankful and joyful I think it's a challenge for us I don't want to minimize sufferings grief pain that we endure through our lives but at the same time I think some of us if you're like me this hit me this week is that I can find myself complaining about some of the trivial things in my life I could wish I had more of this. I could wish I could get more of that. I could wish things could be this way or people could look like this in my life or whatever the case would be. Paul considers who God has put in his life. He's thankful for them while he's in jail. He should convict us, convicted me. Why is he thankful? Well, he's thankful, he tells us in verse four, for their participation, their partnership. The word here is koinonia. Everybody look at your neighbor and say koinonia. Koinonia. Very good. It's a good word. It's a word that's in the Bible. That's the word, koinonia. The word here, oftentimes we translate it as partnership. It was translated here, participation or fellowship. All of those words are words that we use to describe koinonia. I'll just hang on the word fellowship because for me, fellowship has always been a little fuzzy. Partially because I just don't like the word fellowship. Like it just, ah, I don't really, yeah, I don't like it. I don't like saying it. There's certain words I don't like to say. Maybe you have your own. For me, fellowship is one of those words. I don't enjoy saying the word, right? When we think of fellowship, oftentimes it can conjure up feelings of sharing something. Sharing of something. For example, um, the sharing of good times together. Fellowship, right? We shared some good times. We'll put up on some partners in spades. Can I get an amen? amen. Last night we took care amen. of business with some spades. Sharing of something. Sharing of a couple of coffee and a donut. You share of something, sharing of a meal and good conversation. That's oftentimes what we think. But it's when Paul talks about fellowship, it's much deeper than that. Those things certainly can foster, they can aid fellowship, but they definitely do not define what it is. Clearly, it has nothing to do with Paul's talking about. Remember, there's extreme distance geographical distance between Paul and the people that he's writing to. This fellowship that he's talking to is not the sharing of something, rather it is the sharing in something, the sharing in something. Look at what follows in verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the last day until now. This partnership that Paul is full of thanks, full of joy as he considers, originates and centers in the gospel of Christ. The gospel is what has formed the partnership. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. Their partnership is not based on political allegiance or personal affinity, but on their partaking in grace. That is where their partnership is rooted. Folks, let me remind you this morning, we love because God first loved us. And the Bible tells us, we know from history, the way he shows us that love, his grace is in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And the greatest expression of love that you can give is to give your life for another. It's the greatest expression. God, by the greatest means possible, demonstrated his love for you and me even though while we offended him, sinned against him, he sent his one and only son to die for us. We love because he first loved us i love this community of people i love the fact what brings us together is that we have a great great god who spared no expense to bring us to bring you and me into his family to adopt us as his children as his sons and as his daughters this is the invitation if you're if you're here this morning and you're not a christian you know maybe you look around and think i don't know if i want to be a part of these people i'm going to tell you right now okay okay Everybody thought that at some point until they encountered the saving love of God. And then we recognize, check it out, we're all sinners. What Paul shares with the Philippians, sometimes Paul seems like a spiritual superhero. Like, I could never be like that guy. But the truth is, every single one of us can be defined as sinners in desperate need of God's saving grace. He's not concerned with what, as you pull up a seat next to the table, around the table, next to a brother and a sister, he's not asking you a question, what what do you have to bring to this family? What do you have to contribute? That's not what he's doing. if If you ask that question, what business do you have being a part of God's family? The only answer is none. The only reason why I'm here is because of what he did, not what I can do. There are partakers of grace. This partnership that they are the beloved community that they are a part of is the work of God, not their own work. That's what their partnership is. He's so thankful, joyful thanks. He's so thankful for it. But why is he so thankful for them specifically? He tells us a few reasons. First is the advance of the gospel. We'll see throughout the book of Philippians that what Paul wants to see happen is this gospel message to explode throughout the world. For, for, for sinners to become saved. That's what he wants. He wants the gospel to advance. This comes directly from our understanding of this word partnership. The New Testament understanding of the word koinonia. Say that word again. Go. Koinonia. Our understanding of this word is actually tied to financial matters. For example... Romans 15, 26, Christians from Macedonia send money to aid the poor in Jerusalem. When they do that, they're entering into a partnership. There's a financial means by which they enter in together. That's how the word is often used in the New Testament. Genuine fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. It is what happens when you take Jesus, who is the absolute source of life, place him directly in your center, the center of your life, and share, allow him to be the center, not just of your life, but the relationships around you. This partnership exists by and for the advance of the gospel. We see this throughout the letter. Paul's burden for the gospel to spread. So the first reason I think he's thankful for the partnership is because their partnership allows more people to hear about Jesus. It allows the gospel to go forward, okay? Second reason why I think he's thankful for them especially, if you look in verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I think the second reason why he's thankful is because he's he's reminding them of this wonderful truth. You can write this down. I'll make the connection that they are not alone. That they are not alone, Now, I'm sure Paul most likely realizes that his imprisonment could be discouraging for this young church, right? He planted, he is their spiritual father in many ways. To get news that their spiritual father was in jail could instantly bring discouragement, fear into the church. Wait, Paul's in jail? In Rome? We're we're a Roman colony. What could happen to us? They, They could be terrified, And what Paul is reminding them is that their spiritual endurance is not dependent on Paul's presence, right? Paul can come and Paul can go, as he does in Philippi. It's not Paul that will keep them. It is God. To me, this is amazing news. It should be to you as well. If you study history, individual after individual after individual, what you see of men and women in history is that they will, if you put your hopes on those people, they will fail you at some time in your life, in their life. They are not perfect. Just pick one historical figure. Study their life and you will see flaw after flaw after flaw. Even the greatest men, the greatest women who have walked on this earth. Sinners. And if you put your hope and in, in your your hope of being a spiritually mature Christian on the shoulders of another godly man or a godly woman, you won't get there, okay? Now, for me, the reason why this is especially relevant is if you, I don't know if you're on Twitter or whatever, but maybe you've heard of the hashtag X. I don't even know how to say evangelical, maybe people who have been identified as evangelicals who have left the evangelical denomination as they've seen. I mean, for a host of different reasons, right? Some that I think are ridiculous, and some that, that are understandable. Okay, but a lot of this comes from I mean, what I've seen as I've paid attention to some of the conversation is that they've seen. There's been a number of pastors in our country that led have led great just. I've just heard of two recently I had no idea of who are strong radio ministries, many, many books, conferences, huge churches, and they've had moral failings in their life. And oftentimes the response, that's not what's happening here in Paul. That's not why he's in jail. He's in jail because he's preaching Jesus, okay? That's why he's in jail. So Paul is not morally failing them, okay? But if you put your hopes and trust on somebody, anybody... and and then you see them fall away, you see them broken down, or maybe they just move away, and you can be discouraged. Don't be, because the God who started a work in you is the God who will bring it to completion, right? It's exactly what Paul is telling them here. Your spiritual growth is not dependent. God uses godly men and women in our lives. Absolutely, yes and amen, okay? Okay? But if if you think about the person who's had the most significant influence in your life, and if God removes that individual from your life geographically, for whatever reason, will you still be standing? Will you still be standing? Your answer should be yes, because God's the one who completes the work in me, not that person, okay? So Paul's encouraging them. They are not alone. God is with them. What he started, he will finish. Second thing I think he's thankful for is that he's, he's not alone, he is not alone. They are with him. For you are all partakers with me of grace, But in my imprisonment, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Even through their distance, the very thought of these dear friends of his is enough to encourage our brother's heart. Look at how he talks about them in verse 8. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Quick point. Paul does not hold these friends close to his heart because of what they can do for him. okay. Paul does not, and I want to make this clear, especially for some some folks who maybe have, have been in ministry for a while, their usefulness to Paul is not necessarily strictly tied to their utility for him how they can advance the gospel. Oftentimes in the missional movement, we put so much of a focus on getting the gospel out, on expanding and growing ministry, that we lose heart, we lose sight of the fact that the reason we're in community is because of God's love and the reason that we are friends is not just what we can do for one another, but because of who we are. Okay? Okay? Paul see these, sees his friends in Philippians. He yearns for them, the affection of Christ. He holds them in his heart, not because of what they can do for him, but because simply of who they are. Okay? And this is what gospel-centered friendship looks like. If you come here at East, we do not see you primarily as a person who can contribute to the mission of the church. Are you that? Should you be that? Yes. But that's not primarily how we see you. It's not primarily how Jesus sees you. He sees you as a sinner in desperate need of his grace and mercy. And when you come into relationship with him, you know what he calls you? He calls you a child. He calls you a child, right? That's who we are. These are Paul's friends, The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't get to pick and choose who comes to church with us. Okay? This, like look around right now, this is our community. And if you tie your mind and your hopes to a future idea of what this community could be, you will never... Never appreciate the blessing of what this community is. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in one of his great, one of the greater books that I've read is on this subject, Life Together. Third and final point, just to wrap it up, is a word of prayer. We see this in verses 9 through 11. His prayer for them, he, he gives thanks for them, and he, he closes by praying for them. And this is, a, this is a typical way that Paul will write the beginning of his epistles prayers and thanksgivings. What's really unique about the book of Philippi, Philippians, is that when Paul threw out the letter, what he's not doing, which he does in other books, he's not doing here, is he's not addressing big doctrinal differences, correcting heretical ideas that have infiltrated the church. He's not doing that. I think he's protecting that by encouraging them with some doctrine, but he's not, cor- he's not correcting anything that's wrong in the church doctrinally. And he's also not addressing any moral failings that is happening, that's happening in the church. This is a love letter. From Paul to his friends at Philippi. He's writing them because he loves them. And so he, he prays for them. Just look at it real quick. Love, his prayers that love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. He prays for a deep, deep love. Now, to be clear, their love is already one that we should try to imitate. It's a deep, special love. Paul is not satisfied with it, he wants their love for each other to grow. The early pagan world was amazed by many things of the Christian movement. They had questions. I'm taking a church history class right now, and you read some of the ancient texts that people wrote as they gave a defense, as they asked questions of the faith and gave a defense to the faith. And oftentimes, the question that keeps coming up is, first of all, what is this Christianity, right? So just tell us what it is. We don't understand it. It seems weird. You know, eat my flesh, drink my blood. What is going on? But the other question that comes up over and over and over again as how do you people love each other? How do you love each other? This love that you have, women were on the margins of society and they've been brought in to this beloved community, right? The pagan world looks at that and says, what is happening? What is going on? The Christian love in the early church and in our lives today is the greatest apologetic that we can give for our faith that what we believe is legit. If we don't love each other well, people will look at what we believe and they'll say, ha, it's hooey. forget about it. It ain't real, okay? But when we love each other in a supernatural way, people will start to lean in, ask questions, give me an explanation, okay? So he wants their love to continue to grow. But he's not done praying. Why does he want their love to grow? So that, if I were you, I would underline, circle, whatever you got to do, so that. He wants their love to grow, to abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that they would approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Folks, he wants them to grow in their deep love. Why? so that they can become spiritually mature. Deep, deep Christian, genuine Christian friendship leads to spiritual maturity. That's his prayer. He recognizes that for them to grow and to become who God has made them to be, that they have to grow in their love for one another. They have to do it. A couple years ago, my wife and I were of uh, kids, took the kids out to visit her brother on the, on the West Coast. And Jesse Bradley, maybe many of you were here when Jesse Bradley's one of the pastors. He, at that time, was living um, just north of the Bay Area. And so we connected, went to his church, worshiped with him and his family. And it was an awesome time. And then we went and got some In-N-Out, which was tasty, very tasty In-N-Out. If you haven't had that, I would recommend it when you're out there. And then we went to one of the Redwood Forests that was close by. I don't know if any of you have ever seen or been to a redwood forest and seen these redwood trees. They are a sight to see. They're amazing, right? They grow hundreds, 250 feet tall. Some of them are 40 feet around. Many of them are several hundred years old. They are a truly magnificent sight. But if you're there, you'll notice that they grow in groves. They grow in groves, okay? Okay. And the reason they grow in groves is because their roots don't sink deep down in the soil like a tree would around here. Instead, their roots go about five feet below and they spread out and they intertwine with each other. And they feed off of one another. And as a result, they form one of the most majestic forests that your eyes can lay hold of, right? No connectedness, no growth. The same can be said for the church if we are not connected, if our lives are not like the roots of a redwood tree, intertwined with one another, there will be limited growth. There will be limited growth. So as you think about the distance, the spiritual distance, between where you are now and where you want to be spiritually, an important, important, important ingredient in your formula to get there is going to be, be connected with other brothers and sisters. I think it was a community group a couple months ago. I think it was Nate mentioned this. We were talking about what is community. And as we talked and had some different ideas about community group, what Nate said was revolutionary. It was awesome. He said, it sounds a lot like friendship. It's Like, <laughs> absolutely. I think sometimes, and I want to just apologize for this, I think sometimes as a church, we can overthink things. We can be guilty of overthinking Christian community. It's got a... And yeah, there's some definite things that it needs to have, right? But genuine Christian friendship is a blessing, whether you know it or not, that you need. And to have it, what Christ calls us to do is to take him, who often is on the periphery of our lives, and bring him into the center of our heart, the center of our life, and the center of our relationships. So just in closing, practical things real quick. How do we do this? I just follow, I'll just follow Paul's formula, okay? I think the first thing is to connect. He was connected with Philippi, Philippi, we see this in the greeting. Connect with folks here. Do you know people? Take some time as you're putting up chairs after service, as you're out in the lobby, connect with folks. If you've already done that and you say, hey, I want to be connected with a deeper, intentional group of friends, we would love that. We have groups that meet throughout the week that are in each other's lives, that are playing board games, that are serving together throughout the week. I want to invite you into that. If you're not a part of that, you're missing out, okay? Ed has something starting next. It's wrong in the bulletin. It's the 19th. Just some men coming together Saturday mornings. The time is? Uh, Seven seven o'clock here. Here. Yeah. You want to meet guys? Seven o'clock Saturday mornings. That's going to start up next week. Get connected. Second thing is I would say, what's that? Did you say something? I'm sorry. Okay. Second thing is, thank God. Follow Paul's example. Look around this room. Who are you thankful for? Who are you thankful for? Thank God. We did prayer cards last week. You write somebody's name, some prayer bullets. If we still have those, I don't know if we do. I would encourage you to think of somebody in this church and specifically thank God for that person and think of different things that you can thank God for. Pray for that person is the last one. Pray. So thank God and prayer is the last one. right? Pray that our love would increase, that it would abound more and more here at this church. And uh, I would say also, yeah, I think believing in your heart that, that being a part of this community is a blessing. That you not just will be blessed by it, but you will bless other people as well. Right? So get connected, thank God in prayer. What we're going to do just finally is we're going to have communion, okay? Um, this word thank, when he thanks God at the beginning, the word in, in Greek is actually where we get our word Eucharist from. Okay, it's the exact same word. It's where we get our word Eucharist, which is what we call the Lord's Supper, right? And so as we get around this supper table right now, we do so as a family, and we thank God that we are that, that he is our Father, and that we are his family, and so what we're going to do for the next couple of minutes is we have tables scattered throughout here. There'll be some light music playing. I would invite you to just go to the Lord for a word of prayer. Ask him specifically to fill your heart, to fill your mind with thanksgiving and with joy as you consider what God has done to bring you into his family. Okay? I'm going to read this real quick and then we will, we will get at We'll do it. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let me pray. Father God, as we gather around your table right now, Lord, and as we take of the cup and as we drink, eat of the bread, Lord, we are reminded that we do so as a family. Lord, and we, we thank you uh, by the sacrificial, supernatural way by which you have brought us into your family. Lord, we are humbled by it. Lord, I pray that you would use this time for us, in a, in, deep down inside of our hearts, Lord, to f- be filled with thanksgiving and love, Father.